What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Stories this week include J&F Investments Settle an FCPA Criminal Case, Why Third-Party Due Diligence is an Ongoing Exercise, Citigroup Fined $400 Million for Lax Risk Management, Ephemeral Messaging is Frowned Upon by the SEC, World Economic Forum says that ESG reports should include anti-corruption metrics, why supply chains are under more scrutiny, some open-door tales, and do the FinCEN papers show the need for an AML whistleblower protection program? All this and more on This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, for This Week in FCPA, episode 226, the week ending October 16, 2020, the Losing My Yips edition. As the non-cheating Houston Astros attempt to return to the World Series, we are back to look at and talk about some of the stories which caught our collective eyes this week in the compliance and ethics world. So, Jay, what say you? I say I hope to be yip-free on this podcast, so let's get going. So, Jay, we had another FCPA criminal plea this week. This involved the Brazilian company J&F. They are infamously known uh, because they were a part of JBS, who at one time had the world's largest anti-corruption fine, in the history of the world ever now, number two, having been overtaken by Airbus. They paid, uh, I think, uh, $2 billion to the uh, Brazilian government uh, for their uh, fines, and, excuse me, $1.4 billion uh, plus $414 million to a special social uh, project fund in Brazil over 25 years. Uh, their corruption was endemic, widespread, uh, billions paid out in uh, uh, corrupt payments or at least millions. Um, they got into FCPA trouble because they were running their bribery scheme through the United States, through the United States banking system, and um, bribery uh, was facilitated inside the United States. The uh, They also owned a U.S. company, Pilgrim's Pride, which is a chicken uh, a processing company for those who might not know or who are not Buffalo Wings aficionados. And it's a, it's a huge case. Um, some of these cases out of Brazil are, are just mammoth, obviously Petrobras, Odebrecht, uh, JBS, and now uh, J&F Investments. There was a fine levied of $256 million by the uh, Department of Justice, also, a SEC disgorgement and interest of $28.9 million. Uh, the Department of Justice gave JNF credit for of one half of the U.S. criminal fine for the payments that it made to 
the Brazilian government. So a massive FCPA case, lots to data mine that uh, I'll certainly be uh, taking a deep dive into, Jay. Uh, so next up, we have a couple articles looking at uh, the forever under scrutiny third parties under third party due diligence. In the show notes, we leak, we link to Mike Volkov, who I guess it's his birthday today. So happy birthday, Mike. Uh, his shows up in the corruption, crime and compliance blog. And then we also look at something from Jim Nortz that comes to us from Corporate Compliance Insights. So Mike says, letting third parties do the dirty work. We all know it when we see it, a recurring fact pattern in which a company enlists a corrupt third party intermediary for one purpose and one purpose only to pay a bribe. Here's some recent examples. Cognizant technology in this FCPA matter The former president and general counsel directed the scheme with two other C-suite officers to pay $2 million to an Indian government official for a planning permit. In Sergeant Marine, a second example of a recent DOJ settlement, Sergeant Marine settled for $16.6 million for bribery schemes in Brazil, Venezuela, and Ecuador. Sergeant Marine paid bribes to government officials by funneling money through sham consulting agreements with consultants and payments through offshore bank accounts. And the last example Mike cites is World Acceptive Corporation. This company paid the SEC $21.7 million for FCPA violations in Mexico's. The company secured valuable government contracts to offer consumer loans to government employees by paying bribes and cash to government and union officials. Now I'm going to switch over to a conversation between Jim Nortz and an assistant U.S. attorney trying to find out about the company's ability to effectively management, manage due diligence. AUSA, do you have enough internal resources to effectively manage your company's FCPA risk? My response, I do have sufficient resources and have the full support of the company's board. AUSA, would you like to have more resources to get the job done? My response, thank you, no, I really have all the resources I need. AUSA, Did the company perform due diligence on third-party intermediaries? Response, yes, we did so with the assistance of a highly regarded agency that specializes in this type of work. AUSA, did the agency or company's due diligence process detect intermediaries' corrupt business practices? Response, no. AUSA, so if your due diligence process failed to detect corrupt business practices with intermediaries who routinely paid bribes to government officials, Why should we or any other entity have the confidence in your third-party anti-corruption program? So as you can see, both guys are looking in an area that we habitually address third-party due diligence, and it's something that people need to pay attention to, not only in the short term, but on ongoing operations. Uh, Jay, next up, we had a um, $400 million fine levied against Citigroup or its failures in overall risk management. Uh, the fines were jointly from against Citigroup and Citibank by the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency and the Federal Reserve, uh, at both jointly. It was really interesting, and uh, kudos to our good friend Matt Kelly, who wrote a couple of blog posts on it. And it really, um, they didn't go into so much the failures in the uh, settlement documents, as what they expected Citigroup to do going forward. And so 
it's it's almost anonymized in terms of the the responsibilities of Citigroup, but that gives the compliance practitioner um, some great information about what certainly the OCC and the Fed think about governance, data governance, governance, risk management, compliance, audit, uh, ERM, and uh, how you can think through all of these uh, issues. Matt and I had the opportunity to take a deep dive into it, into compliance in the weeds, but I commend Matt's two blog posts, which of course we've linked to in the show notes, as a great way to start and then take a deep dive into the settlement documents. I think uh, you'll be able to uh, use those as not only a benchmark for your own program, but you really get a good insight into what the regulators are thinking and how the DOJ might uh, think down the road. Next up, we've got something from our good friend Jonathan Marks in his Board and Fraud blog. And Jonathan's taking a look at why ephemeral messaging is frowned upon by the SEC. The SEC punishes a broker-dealer for conducting business over text messages or on personal devices. The background of the matter, the SEC entered an order on September 23rd of this year against Jones Trading Institutional Services, the firm, a broker-dealer located in California, for failing to retain text messages regarding to the firm's business. The SEC fined Jones Trading $100,000. Jones Trading maintains policies and procedures to ensure it was retaining business-related records, including communications in conformance with the communications policy, which stated, electronic business communications must be accessed and transmitted only through sponsored systems. Regulators require a retention of business communication and firm systems are designed to comply. The policy stated that text messaging is not approved to conduct business and home computers and other personal devices and external systems may not be used for this purpose. However, according to the order, when the SEC issued a third-party subpoena to the broker-dealer, guess what? It found the firm conducted business using text messages and using personal devices. In terms of the Bank Secrecy Act, it mandates that financial institutions must keep customer records to aid in criminal tax or regulatory investigations or protect against international terrorism. Money laundering and fraud can provide the necessary funds for criminal organizations and terrorists to conduct operations that can threaten a nation's security. Here's FinCEN's critical requirements to achieve regulatory compliance. The customer due diligence has four core elements. First of all, you must identify and verify identity of customers. Second, identify and confirm the identity of beneficial owners of legal entities. Third, comprehend the nature and purpose of the customer relationship. And four, conduct ongoing monitoring to identify and report suspicious transactions. Collectively, these elements comprise the minimum standard of the CDD. Financial institutions will need to identify and verify the identity of their customers that own 25% or more of a particular company. We all know or should know individuals launder ill-gotten gains through banks and investment firms, and as such, Customer Due Diligence Rule, or FinCEN's final rule, strengthens the due diligence requirements for U.S. banks, mutual funds, broker-dealers, and future commission merchants to have them identify and verify their customers' beneficial ownership. Jay, uh, next up, we had an interesting article by Worth McMurray and Elaine Dzinski uh, over on the FCPA blog about what I thought was a really interesting and, and very positive development from the World Economic Forum, uh, which said that 
in looking at stakeholder capitalism and moving towards more common metrics and consistent reporting of ESG metrics, they've added a component for anti-corruption metrics. Certainly, anti-corruption metrics and disclosures are a part of things that should be reported, and, and you and I certainly believe that in all the way down to our bones. But to see the World Economic Forum acknowledge this, that uh, with uh, all of the discussion around ESG, sustainability, and climate change, and sh- social justice, now we've got anti-corruption metrics as a part of what the World Economic Forum wants to see measured. And whether or not um, you know this becomes any kind of... Um, permanent feature or not, it's a huge uh, moving the ball forward on the discussion. So to have the World Economic Forum talking about anti-corruption measures, I thought was significant. And I really wanted to highlight this um, because many of us are thinking about other areas such as climate change, such as social justice, such as diversity and inclusion, such as other ESG factors. And to have, uh, I think, compliance or anti-corruption compliance is a significant uh, development. Great. Next up, we've got something coming to us from Navex Global's Risk and Compliance Matters blog. Uh, this is from somebody that we've picked up several times before, Vera Sharapranova, and she takes a look at supply chains under scrutiny. This summer, one of the UK's best-known online brands found its supply chain at the center of a high-profile modern slavery investigation. Within hours of the story breaking, the company's share price plummeted, as commentators, politicians, and the wider public shared their verdict on allegations levied against the firm. While COVID-19 has put supply chains under unprecedented public scrutiny from a logistical perspective, this example highlights another key issue with third-party relationships that is rapidly gaining traction among governments and regulators worldwide, human rights. Many companies are now taking a fresh look at their supply chains for compliance with human rights standards and other related risks. Here are some recent developments that you need to know. Multiple jurisdictions have become increasingly serious about implementing environmental, social, and corporate governance ESG legislation. Their goal is to hold companies accountable for noncompliance with human rights and environmental standards. In the UK, in April of this year, the government published new, new guidance regarding slavery and human trafficking statements that certain businesses are obliged to publish under Section 54 of the Modern Slavery Act of 2015. Here in the United States, in July of this year, the Slave-Free Business Certification Act was introduced by Congress. If passed, the act would require corporations with annual worldwide gross receipts in excess of $500 million to audit and report on instances where forced labor is in the supply chain. In the European Union in April of this year, the EU Commissioner for Justice, Didier Renders, announced that the EU will introduce mandatory human rights, environmental due diligence relationships in early 2020. This has given rise to the fact that the consumer is now become an enforcer. Governments and businesses are facing mounting pressure from civil organizations human rights defenders, and general public to conduct thorough and regular due diligence. Customers are ready to fill the gaps left by regulators by highlighting suspected breaches with considerable commercial consequences. Here are three steps steps that you need to know to mitigate your supply chain risk. First of all, conduct a comprehensive risk assessment. 
engaged in a comprehensive risk assessment to identify and proactively deal with modern slavery, human rights, and other wider ESG risks. Number two, extend your compliance efforts to your supply chain. Adopt a risk-based approach to manage your third parties will enable you to prioritize your risk management efforts and target resources accordingly. At the same time, your compliance processes, including audits, training programs, policies, and reporting mechanisms should flow down to your supply chain. And finally, three, look for synergies between compliance, legal, and corporate social responsibility. Your human rights risk assessments and audits should be part of corporate due diligence and risk mitigation strategy that encompasses firm-wide ESG factors. Working in silos is no longer an option. Compliance and ethics departments must consider the connections among corruption and human rights violations. With regulatory, commercial, and media attention on the rise, companies will need to rethink their supply chain sustainability strategies accordingly. And in the face of increasing transparency and awareness, businesses that have until now operated on a light-touch basis regarding supply chain risk management will now be forced to improve their controls. Jay, our good friends at Wells Fargo are back in the news. Um, Say it is so. And they don't have the yips. Uh, unfortunately, they have no corporate culture either, but uh, this time it is for 100 employees being fired for allegedly making false representations in applying for and obtaining loans specifically intended for small businesses that desperately needed the funds to uh, due to COVID-19. The loans were made under the federal government's Payment Protection Program, or PPP, which was part of the, the multi-trillion dollar CARES Act. It's not clear how much of the money was uh, purloined by these um, uh, actions above these employees. But, I mean, you just, why anyone would do business with Wells Fargo, it has to have one of the most toxic and corrupt cultures of of any organization. Um, Obviously, everyone knows about the $3 billion settlement. They know about the fraudulent account scandal. They know about Wells Fargo CEO Charles Schraff. Uh, claiming that um, Wells couldn't meet its diversity goals because of the limit limited pool of black talent to recruit from. I'm sure that made the African-Americans at Wells Fargo feel pretty good. And now this, um, just it's one foobar after another. They step in it themselves a time and time and time again. I really hope you don't bank at Wells Fargo. Uh, unfortunately, our loan got sold to Wells Fargo, so I hope we don't get... Uh, Something from Wells Fargo because of that, but um, I wouldn't ba- I wouldn't bank with them voluntarily. All right, and our last article uh, for this week comes to us from the NYU Compliance and Enforcement blog, and uh, from I hope I get your name right, Hamsa Mahendranathan, who is a, an associate at Constantine Cannon. And this week, Hamsa looks at FinCEN files prove we need an anti money laundering whistleblower program. The FinCEN files, it sounds ominous and recalls the Panama Papers, the Paradise Papers, and others. Like those earlier stories, FinCEN files expose powerful players, including a large number of highly regulated banking giants. The files that were published by a consortium of investigative journalists and BuzzFeeds document over 200,000 suspicious financial transactions via documents leaked from the U.S. Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. 
The transactions involved numerous major international banks, including, among others, Deutsche Bank, who in 2017, New York and UK regulators fined Deutsche Bank £163 million, pounds, which is $204 million, and at $425 million, respectively, for facilitating suspicious mirror trades between 2012 and 2015. HSBC paid $1.9 billion, with a B in fines, for allowing drug kingpins, including the notorious El Chapo, to launder more than $880 million. Standard Chartered in 2019 agreed to pay $1.1 billion to resolve charges relating to its role in laundering hundreds of millions of dollars for unsavory entities and individuals. The FinCEN files are largely made up of SARS, which are suspicious activity reports, which beg the questions, why isn't voluntary reporting through SARS enough to stop money laundering? Why does money laundering continue despite voluntary reporting? Suspicious activity reports are one of the tools FinCEN and other international regulators use to identify suspicious transactions. Financial institutions must file SARS to report certain transactions. These, uh, the institution knows suspects or has reason to suspect that the transaction may either one involve funds from illegal activity, is intended to hide or disguise funds, has no business apparently lawful purpose, facilitates criminal activity, or finally otherwise aims to violate or evade federal laws. One of the pitfalls of relying on voluntary reporting is obviously that it requires financial institutions to report on their own clients. And as Deutsche Bank's Mirror trade scheme illustrate big banks may be willing to turn a blind eye to potential financial crimes for very profitable clients. Who knows? Maybe even the president of the United States banks there. This suggests that SARS and the FinCEN files could be just the tip of the iceberg. And who knows how many suspicious financial transactions were never reported at all. The SEC has been extremely tremendously successful and harnessing whistleblower information to crack down on security violations. Through the SEC program, whistleblowers can make a submission to the agency anonymously if they wish, and this information can help the SEC recover funds and the whistleblower may be eligible for an award. Currently, there is no analogous program for whistleblowers to disclose money laundering concerns. Without an incentive program that allows for anonymous reporting, Financial crimes will continue to fall through the cracks. Promisingly, Congress is considering proposals to create a program that does just that. As the FinCEN files demonstrate, we need it ASAP. So, Jay, we had a uh, plethora of podcasts this week, as uh, you might guess, um, on 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program. On Monday, I looked at Safe Harbor in Mergers and Acquisitions. On Tuesday, Pre-Acquisition Due Diligence uh, with a special guest, Vin DeCiani from Affiliated Monitors. Wednesday, I took a look at pre-acquisition risk assessment. Thursday was pre-acquisition due diligence. And on Friday, I looked at integrating um, a company after the transaction closes. And once again, had a special guest, uh, this time Eric Eldman. So coming up, we've got uh, three webinars in the near future. Uh, First of all, Tom will be joined by Sam Silverstein for an executive forum on ethics and accountability. This will be held on October 28th. 
of this year from 2 to 1 p.m. Central Time. And there is a link in the show notes that will bring you to the agenda agenda and the registration page. Next, Tom will be getting together with Holly Sace Philippi, head of America's Risk Sales for Refinitiv, and Kelly Slavitt in a Refinitiv uh, sponsored webinar, The Future of Due Diligence, Third-Party Risk in the Era of COVID-19. This will be October 27th, 1 to 2 p.m. Central Time. Again, we link to it in the show notes. And Tom, what's the final webinar we come, have coming up? So, Jay, next week on October 22nd, NAVEX Global has their ninth annual virtual event. NAVEX has had um, all of their conferences have been virtual events. They made that decision many years ago. And this year, I'm really excited because the uh, topic is beyond the moment. And obviously, you and I have talked about um, Corona, compliance and coronavirus, where we are now and where we may be going. And this this uh, event really, I think, makes us look ahead. They've got some great keynote speakers. Uh, Jerry Greenfield, that's the co-founder of Ben & Jerry's. Mark Phillip of the Phillips Factors, going to be interviewed by Pat Harned. Uh, I'm excited to see that uh, um, oh, Matthew Miner will also be uh, uh, part of that panel They've got some great uh, breakout sessions that I think everyone will uh, be really interested in. The event is free, and uh, we've linked to it in the show notes with both registration and uh, the agenda. So check it all out. I think it's going to be just an excellent event. I hope uh, many of our listeners uh, can attend this. So on behalf of Tom Fox, who is both the compliance evangelist and the voice of compliance, and Tom can be reached at tfox at foxlaw.com. And myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, and I can be reached at Rosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. We'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 226, for the week ending October 16th, 2020, the Losing My Yips edition. As I always uh, send out good wishes to you. Please be safe. Please be healthy. And if you're in California, make sure you find your way to a legitimate mail collection box for your ballot, not one conveniently provided for you by our good friends in the GOP. Sorry for the politics. Be well, and we'll talk to you next week. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If there are any topics you'd like Jay and I to take up, please let us know. Also, you can use the SpeakPipe app on the Compliance Podcast Network site. If you need to reach me, I'm at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Jay's at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. Thanks again for listening. I hope you'll join us again next week where Jay and I take up some of the week's top stories which caught our eye on This Week in FCPA, which is a proud member of C-Suite Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.